1: The Pure Hoops podcast most definitely does reflect the views of our management. Here's three-time NBA champ BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. Pure Hoops podcast, another week, and I'd say this one redefines playoff madness from the bubble. Eric Newman, New York, BJ Armstrong, LA. BJ, before we get into specifics, I lost track of all the craziness this week. How'd you take it all in?
2: Well, it's been exciting, to say the least, watching the games, because there is really no home court. You're watching these games in a neutral site. You know, you're seeing things for the very first time. You're watching these young men play in the bubble. And the most fascinating thing, or one of the most fascinating things, is watching these coaches coach. And the way they're coaching, because there is no travel, because there is no home court, there is no away. It's just been incredible, incredible basketball. As the players get in better condition, you're seeing the defense pick up a little bit, which you know you have seen the scores begin to come down. So overall, it's been great uh, considering the circumstances, and I'm really looking forward to it. And um, you know, the second round has been thrilling, and um, you're starting to see, you know, Miami has made a statement to Milwaukee. They put Milwaukee on notice, and you know, you're, you're you know, we had a great you know, first round matchup in Utah and and Denver. So I think overall it's been fantastic, you know, as far as excitement. But, you know, the Clippers, the Lakers, you know, Boston lost a a tough game, you know, last night to, you know, the Toronto Raptors.
1: Yeah, you beat me to it. You beat me to it. Yeah,
2: so there's been a lot of things to talk about. And, you know, here we are. And I'm looking forward to this evening.
1: Yeah. So let's do, let's do, uh, I got some rapid fire things. So I'm going to just paint the scenario that was, get your reaction to it. We go to the next one. Uh, First up, uh, how much fun was the Jamal Murray Donovan Mitchell shootout? And just how frantic did you feel watching the end of that game seven?
2: Well, you know, before the series started, I, I just looked at the series as a former player. I was like, if I were a guard in today's game, that's the series I want to play in because first you play a screen role and then you're playing against two centers who really don't want to guard screen role. <laughs> you know, so, you know, and obviously Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell saw the same thing. <laughs> you know, what I mean, they went berserk. And, you know, you and I talked about it before the series began. And I said the key to watching this series is going to be how are they going to defend screen role? You know, Rudy Gobert is a great defensive center, but he rim protects. And Jokic, if there's one part of his game that is going to need, you know, really, you know, improving at. And that's how he's going to defend screen roll against those little guards who can either come off and shoot and can attack the rim. So great job by those two guys, you know, phenomenal, phenomenal series. One for the records, and you saw some unbelievable guard play, and most importantly, you—more importantly—you saw some amazing scoring from two very talented young men, and uh, you know it was a great series.
1: And and I want to credit the coaches in both series. The fact that Quinn Snyder got Utah up three-one, and then Mike Malone was able to make the necessary changes and rally the Nuggets to come back from three-one. It was uh, impressive. Uh, on both sides. So speaking of great guard play, like you couldn't have painted or scripted better subplots than Chris Paul and the Thunder versus Westbrook and Harden with the Rockets going seven CP three had an unbelievable game six, uh, in the fourth quarter to force it to game seven. then of course, game seven comes down to, of all things, a Chris Paul, uh, Decision that I know he wants back when trying to pass the ball through that Houston uh, zone there at the end. And then a James Harden block shot of all things. Um, What is your uh, response to how that series played out and the performance of, of course, the great Chris Paul, uh, unfortunately for him in the Thunder and defeat?
2: Well, you know, at Chris Paul's age, what, 35 or so, for him to have a series like this. At this particular time it just speaks volume about who he is as a player and his basketball integrity if you will of what he brings to the game you know there's two things that stand out about chris paul for me in his entire career his ability to manage time and to manage score and he was literally one possession away from probably you know the biggest upset would have been in the bubble you know thank goodness that james harden you know, of all people we thought would make a, a defensive stop at that particular time of the game. But overall, it was a great, great series by the Oklahoma City Thunder because there was no expectations on them. No one anticipated that this team would be in this position, let alone take the Houston Rockets who feel that they are, can make a championship run. They had that mentality with not one but two former MVP players uh, on their team. So great series by them. Houston survived, they advance. And uh, I think it's, you know, they have another tough matchup here in the, in the second round with the LA Lakers.
1: Yeah, Houston Lakers will be fun to watch. I got to get the survive and advance t-shirt out of the laundry that I did yesterday. I'll, I'll have it back for next week, I, I promise. But um, Miami, Milwaukee, you know, obviously, I never had the on-court basketball experiences you had, but I learned from a lot of really good coaches when I was young and when I was coaching. And one of the things that was never tolerated, whether it's middle school kids, high school kids, college kids or in the pros, if you're in the backcourt and you got nowhere to throw that ball, you better throw it down to the other end. And I'm talking about the end of the Miami-Milwaukee madness in game two where Jimmy Butler up six gets trapped in the corner and then just time stops, and the end of that game turns into uh, some of the most unique things we've ever seen before with decisions and replays and the referees. The foul call on Giannis puts Butler at the line. Share with me where you're at watching all of this happen in the last 90 seconds of a playoff game.
2: Well, watching this series has been... I mean, technically speaking, Coach Spole and the game plan that him and his staff have plan put together great. has been nothing short of, like, I mean, this is coaching one-on-one. I mean, if you want to know how to play transition defense, just watch this series. Because every single time that Giannis catches the ball, he has five jerseys that are looking directly at him in position. It reminds me of kind of what Virginia does or how collegiate basketball players play basketball where they come back and they just guard their – it's like a zone defense. I don't know what they're doing, but it just reminds me of like college basketball. You just run back and you guard your, your space. They've done a terrific job on walling off Giannis, and that's first and foremost. They've clearly made a commitment to Giannis in half court Full court, they're probably, they probably sleep in this position right now, <laughs> the way they're playing. <laughs> so the coaching of Coach Spole yep. has been incredible. Give the players credit for the details of being able to go out and execute it. And then finally, they're making shots. Clearly, they figured out something that they can do. They can run. They're exploiting matchups uh, on, the, on the offensive end, in particular with Jimmy Butler And then they have terrific spacing. You know, give you know Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson and 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 all of those guys who are playing on the perimeter, you know, they've been playing excellent. And when you're making shots and you're playing good defense, you're gonna be in the game. But I will say this: you know, when you have a player like Giannis, you have an ability to make an adjustment. So, you know, I look for the Milwaukee Bucks to figure out where to place Giannis and give him an opportunity. To create what I call advantage basketball, meaning they're gonna to have to double team him at some point. And then if they're making shots, uh, you know, they could easily win two games in a row and now the series is tied. So, uh, but thus far, Coach Spald and these guys have an excellent game plan. Uh, they could have easily have lost game two, as you alluded to, and yep. uh, this series would be 1-1. But nonetheless, they've taken care of their business. They've won two games, you know more or less on the road, if we will, mm-hmm. <laughs> wink, wink. And uh, now they have to go and, and try to close this thing out when uh, if, the, if the possibility presents itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, ironically, the Bucks were up 2-0 last year on Toronto, lost four straight. Um, you know, I, I don't want to make too much of officiating. Obviously, Miami played a better game overall, and it was almost like they almost gave it away. Karma cooperated. Um, what did you think of that call? On uh, Giannis on Butler at the end, do you think it was a foul?
2: Well, it it was a foul, and you know, I you know, you got to call a foul when it's a foul. You know, I I've been in situations where, you you know, you want the players to to determine the outcome of the game, but when you look at it clearly, it was a foul, and you know how big of a foul, what have you a foul is a foul and I thought it was the right call the right play and you move on so you know I don't have a problem with that you know you know you got to call it like you see it and these things happen very quickly but when you look at the when you look at the replay to me clearly was a foul
1: yeah and, and Giannis while trying to challenge as the second defender in the play I mean at that point he's got to keep his hands away so um You get into these interpretations of what's a foul in a certain situation and what's not, and you can go back and forth for days. Before we get to our guests, one more. The Celtics looking very impressive going up 2-0, and they were half a second away from going up (laughs) 3-0. They were half a second away, half a second. Um, We're recording this on Friday. I'm still mesmerized by the whole sequence that led up to it. the the They go up four, and then you've got Toronto coming back, tying the game. Kemba makes the great play to Tice for the dunk. And then, of course, um, Kyle Lowry just makes an unbelievable pass, and OG Ananubi makes an unbelievable shot. Take me through uh, the BJ Armstrong lens of uh, how the Raptors pulled it off.
2: You know... And if I can speak openly here.
1: As you always do. If,
2: if you are the Boston Celtics, I'm very encouraged. Because Jason Tatum did not play well at all. Overall, the team wasn't playing well. And if it takes that type of effort and that type of shot and that type of play to beat this team, the Boston Celtics, I'm very encouraged. So, you know, Jason Tatum has really, for me, moved into the next phase of his career. He's a great player. If you're a great player in this league, you don't have back-to-back bad games. Jason Tatum should have a great game in game four. And I expect the Boston Celtics to play much better. And I'm not sure how much more the Toronto Raptors can, what they can do, like, You know, they seem now to have Siakam under wraps. They know what's going on there and how they're going to defend him. They seem to have a good matchup at the guard play. You know, normally Toronto has an advantage. You know, I don't know if they have an advantage versus Kimball Walker and Marcus Smart. The bigs for the Celtics have stepped up to – I mean, they're they're playing excellent. And, of course, you have Tatum – You have Jalen Brown. This team seems to be clicking. And, you know, give Toronto credit. Now, I I like Toronto. I'm a Toronto Raptors fan. I love their coach. They made adjustments in game three. They played with a sense of urgency. I love everything about it. In the end, it comes down to talent. And the Boston Celtics appear to be a team that is very confident. They're playing with a lot of confidence on both ends of the court. And I don't expect Jason Tatum to have the same shooting performance that he had in game three. With that, you know, I I think it's going to be tough. I'm not saying that they're not going to have to earn it, but I expect the Celtics to close them out. And they look like the better team at this point.
1: They will come out in game four with great purpose, but so will Toronto. And Toronto really showed great resiliency, um, but the Celtics had him. They had him right where they wanted him. And as Dennis Green once said, uh, we let him off the hook. But uh, that was a good rapid fire, buddy.
2: That play by Kimber Walker was one of the great passes. Oh, that that, that yeah. was that was a yeah. – look, listen, if you're going to lose a game, that's how you're supposed to lose a game. A guy makes a shot like that, hey, great job, let's go to game four. I, I, yeah. I I'm okay with that yeah. loss. What I'm – you know, if you lose and you don't show up and you get blown out and you're just not ready to play, hey, Toronto right. is a very good team. They, they're going to fight. They're going to scratch. A they're going to claw. That's how basketball is supposed to be played. But I just want to make sure that if you get a chance to watch just one play from that game, that pass by Kimber Walker was – that was one of the great plays I've seen. You know, in a critical moment. I mean, just the moment, uh, the timing of it uh, was great. And uh, but, I, I loved the uh, I love the competitive spirit of the game. And I thought, you know what, it was uh, that was playoff basketball.
1: Yeah, it was great. Dribbled through the trap, got to the second level, and then. Daniel Tice doing uh, doing a lot of good things for that team. He's a good story. So we will continue to monitor both that series and my sanity around it as we move forward. Time for today's guest, BJ. Another big week in the playoffs and a team that uh, we've talked about a lot this season. But we haven't had a uh, haven't had a journalistic voice on talking Clippers in a while. So happy to welcome. Today's guest, Andrew Grife from the LA Times. Andrew, thanks for joining us, buddy. How how are you?
0: Hey, no, thanks for having me on. I'm I'm great out here. It's it's weird being three thousand miles away from the team you cover, but it's uh it's good. I can't complain. Uh,
1: now quickly before we get into the particulars, you were in the bubble uh, first, correct? And now you're back in LA.
0: Correct. Yeah, the first two weeks of the bubble, I was there for Lakers, Clippers. Uh, you know, opening night of the bubble. Uh, was there for the first five Clippers seeding games and then ever since I've been back uh, and, and the times we have someone inside the bubble ever since it opened up in July we'll have someone through the end of the finals uh, so we we definitely have a presence out there but, but I've returned from from Orlando yet.
2: You know Andrew again thanks for for coming on and uh, I always ask people who've been in the bubble now that you're out of the bubble and it the the best way it's been described to me as a glorified scrimmage. but You and I were kind of talking before a little earlier. What, from your perspective, what does it look like now that you see it on television and then that you've actually been down there live covering the teams and seeing the games uh,
0: in person? I think the biggest insight I had from going down there was wondering about the competitiveness, especially during the seeding round when you know, the stakes weren't playoff stakes and you weren't really sure how teams would approach it, especially the contenders but I was most surprised at how uh, really competitive the teams got with each one another. I mean, you'd hear guys kind of shouting out during free throws to distract guys, but then there were guys getting in each other's faces. It got testy at times. It was not just kind of a glorified summer league where, you know, everyone kind of knows what they're doing is a little inconsequential. It's just play the game out. It did not feel like that at all. I mean, you could feel the testiness happening. I remember, you know, thinking about the Portland Clippers game when, right. Patrick Beverly and Paul George got under Damian Lillard's skin with the way they, they – kind of waving goodbye to him at the end of the game as he did <laughs> to Oklahoma City last year. I mean, that's, that's something that I, did, I guess I didn't necessarily expect from uh, an early August game when the Clippers' seeding had basically been wrapped up at that point for the most part. Uh, so it is – it's much more – it's much more um, kind of cutthroat, at least the, the period I was there, than I expected.
1: You go, you go four months off, and then you get the juices flowing again. Guys are gonna start to chatter. That was uh, that that led to some some obviously some great day moments. But he is no longer in the bubble and uh, just shifting to Clippers now. Uh, game one against Denver uh, Thursday, a, a rarity for Doc Rivers fully healthy roster. How um, how'd you think of how that looked? Lineup cohesiveness and and what is the uh, what does the full roster mean for the clippers now as they move forward in terms of both production and how the rotation will work
0: yeah i mean the full roster for the clippers is is dangerous and they're 12 and one this year when they're at full strength um i mean but that's an indication one of the potential and also of how hard it's been to keep these guys on the floor together i mean they've been one after another injuries were just staggered from the time the season began when paul george wasn't on the court and Kawhi started sitting out back to backs again and he had injuries to Landry Shannon, Jim Michael Green, and Patrick Beverly, and on and on it went. Their first game together as a full unit wasn't until Christmas Day. So it's, it's really felt like for Doc, he's just trying to pull his strings to make sure he has on any given night the right combination of guys. And so that's, that led to 30 different starting lineups. It's led to a lot of different experimentation. And some of it, uh, I think that you could look at it from, if you're from a Clippers perspective, and you're thinking it's a positive, that a lot of guys – Got from Maybe especially in the back half of the rotation, they got a lot of experience in the regular season that maybe if the thing is at full strength, maybe a Landry Shannon is getting pushed out a little bit more. Maybe Rodney Marty Magruder isn't ready for the playoffs in case he's called upon because he hasn't played much. Patrick Patterson. Um, it's, been, it's been a difficult challenge, though, because they have barely even practiced together in, in games. It's not, it's not even just the games playing together, but the practices, they've barely been together. So it's, it's not been um, an easy one in terms of cohesion all year.
2: You know, Andrew, those are great points you make. But there's two things that's really stood out with this team as you're watching them all year. One, no, they haven't been healthy. But in addition to them not being healthy, they bring in new additional players. Mm -hmm. I want you to talk about Marcus Morris Sr., what his addition, integrating him into the fold. And then secondly, what has been the unifying factor for this group, right? Has it been Doc Rivers? Has it been a player? Because they've had so many things going on with their team. Injuries, people leaving the bubble, coming out of the bubble. You know, Montrez had a situation that he had to take care of, family situation. What has been the one thing that has kept this team on track? And when you see them play, like last night, mentally, they are present. They seem like a team on a mission. What's been the unifying factor for them? And then talk about how do you integrate another player to the mix? Because there are players are probably getting less minutes
0: um, probably as, you know, the season goes on. Yeah, the the thing that's holding this whole thing together is the idea that they can make history as a team. They can win a title. They can chase a title. Only Kawhi Leonard knows that feeling among the players. Everybody else has, has felt like this is their best shot of their careers to finally get there. And so that is why you've seen guys say, like Marcus Morris, for example, who was taking, I think, 15 shots a game, if not more, in New York this year. That's why he said from the first week he was in with the Clippers, I talked to him after a game in Minnesota, and he said, basically, like, I'm here to fill a role because I want to win a championship. It was great getting those shots in New York. And for Reggie Jackson, it was great playing 30-plus minutes a night with Detroit and getting all the shots he wanted. But by coming to the Clippers, they felt like they were sacrificing for something bigger. And so that's where – the uh kind of the, the gel has been all year. And it hasn't been easy, you know? And, and even for Marcus Morris, right now, he's hitting his stride, he's shooting 56% in the playoffs, but he was terrible from three point, from that 15 games or so from the time he joined until the shutdown. So everything has kind of moved to this point where everyone's saying, you know what, whatever our past roles or whatever our ambitions are for us personally, it's kind of time to give that up because this is really when we could make something special. And
1: We'll be remembered
0: for a title. We're not going to be remembered for what we did before this. That—that that is, And I think Kawhi has been instrumental in that because, again, he doesn't like to talk about what he did in previous title runs. He said that last night. Um, but he, he, guys look to him. He's kind of like a Sherpa because he's been to that mountaintop, of the NBA. No one else has been. And, he, and everyone's like, okay, what do we have to do to get to there? And, and people are following that.
2: You know, Andrew, I just want to follow up here. Because he doesn't talk. You know, he, he doesn't say anything. What's his leadership style? I mean, clearly he's the best player. He elevates his game. He responds under pressure. He responds under duress. What is his style? How would you characterize his style? I mean, it's probably as unique as I've, I've seen as an ex player, as a person who's worked in the league, but you cover him every day. What, how would you define his
0: leadership style? I mean, his teammates say that he is, they swear, No, he's funny. He's a guy who talks more than you think. The the persona is, it's not quite what you think. But I mean, he's been in the league now for what, nine years? And we all kind of know that what he, the guy who we see, that really is a large portion of the person he is. And so um, I think that it's basically boils down to, I lead, you follow. And he does it with actions. And and I say that, it's, it's a cliche thing to say, but I listened to Patrick Beverley. He went to and worked out with Kawhi during the shutdown in San Diego and he went on the JJ Reddick podcast and told this story about how um, even for a guy who works as hard as Patrick Beverly does and considers himself you know one of those grinders of the league one of those upper echelon grinders he said he was blown away by watching the way Kawhi would just kind of uh, take a drill and repeat it down to its basic basic parts until he had it exactly how he wanted it. just again over and over and over and he said that just that repetition that precision blew him away and this is a guy who had known Kawhi for a year at that point who'd been around him but seeing it on hit on Kawhi's you know his his practice routine the way he wanted it um, that told something to Patrick about the way that I need to change my approach to basketball if we want to get where we want to go And so that I think that bleeds over into everybody else and Landry Shamet. He said that they, when they when Kawhi scored eight straight points, basically close out the Mavericks in game six, he said he just started laughing on the courts. So he was like, no one can stop this. What, what do we, you know, we're, when you know you have an ace in the hole like that, it's just easy.
2: I understand that.
0: Yes, I was gonna say. <laughs> you've seen that before. Yeah, I've seen, seen that, that movie.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, speaking of uh, Pat Bev, obviously uh, he was out, Reggie Jackson, Shamit, they were getting minutes pat bev returned for game one against denver um you know andrew what specifically besides the the obvious pat bev spirit you know what does the team miss when he's not in the lineup versus what do they uh, what do they get when he's back
0: it, it, that first thing that they will always point to and they brought it up again last night was the intangible aspect that he is their voice i mean this is someone who going back to last year was basically vital when, when he did not play the intensity dropped off um, the spirit dropped off they have he's basically the barometer for this team even now when they have the stars um, he basically remains the fuel to that engine but i think when you look at the tangible stuff he is one of the best rebounders for his size in the entire league he's, he's fantastic especially on the offensive glass when you get a guy crashing from their perimeter like that that is a huge help. that they was missing completely um, he's a dependable three-point shooter he's A 38 percent uh three-point shooter i want to say the last five years Uh, He drilled his first two from the corner last night coming in cold after not playing since August 17th. Uh, So he, he, I think that we think about him as being um, the defense guy. We think about him being the uh, rah-rah, you know, garbage talking guy, but he's a really more skilled, I think, offensively um, player than is probably given credit for. You,
2: You know, after, after last night's, you know, victory, you know, Doc has talked about this team's intensity. He's talked about them meeting the challenge of the game or the, the, the intensity of the game. What do you think is the biggest challenge for this team moving forward? Because this team has a tendency to kind of lose interest <laughs> at certain points. They, they would have great wins against great teams, and then they would have some bad losses against some teams they probably should have beat. How do you think Doc is going to keep this team engaged after, you know, they know you you don't like to say it, but they seem like a team. And I know it's not the case with them that they can turn it on and turn it off. How does he keep them engaged so that they will, you know, try to finish out a series as quickly as they possibly can.
0: I think that it's as simple as going back to game four of the Mavericks series and saying, no, no, you are fallible. You can be beaten even when you're up 21 points, uh, you guys are not going to coast to a victory. I mean, that was a real gut-check game for them. I mean, Doc called out their emotional resilience after that game. Players felt like they basically were just very open and saying, we were not locked in. Guys, were, guys' heads were elsewhere focused. Some guys weren't even like – Paul George said that he just wasn't, wasn't there uh, amid his shooting struggles. So I think that for as much talent as they know they have and people like us have told them, you are a favorite to win this thing, uh, I think they've heard some of that, and last year's group didn't have that luxury. I mean, last year's group was one that really had to get by giving uh, you know maximum effort all the time. That's why they were so good and so great. That's why we remember them. This year, there are there is an ability to turn it off and turn it on. There is. It, 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 and I want to say it, but they can do that because of the, the talent that they have. Um, but now it's playoffs, and this is their first run together. I think that first play, uh, postseason series against the Mavericks was pretty instructive. Because they came in expecting to win, but then they got punched in the mouth. And how they responded in games five and six, I think, is the sign of this team saying, okay, we know we're good, but we know anyone can beat us, too. We need to lock in. And, and that's what happened last night. I asked Doc after the game kind of whether he'd revisited the topic of making sure that they had a more focused effort um, than they had to start the Dallas series, And he said that was, that was absolutely something he talked about in those two or three off days before game one of the second round. That, um, you have to start off um, – every round it gets tougher. You have to start it off quicker. And clearly they did that. I mean, they allowed 36 points in 24 minutes to uh, to Denver between the second and third quarters.
1: Marcus Morris obviously can score the ball. He can defend. He's got playoff experience. Um, the physicality he's shown, how much did that play into the Clippers wanting to pick him up at the deadline?
0: Yeah, it was absolutely a factor. I mean, the I think one of the main reasons why they wanted to uh, get him was because they felt like he was going to keep defenses more honest than Maurice Harkless was from the three-point line. Mo was one of those unique defenders who can switch basically one to five. was extremely valuable, especially guarding point guards. Um, but they felt like Marcus was that guy who, if you put him in a corner, you put him on the perimeter, he's gonna and this has tracked more honest defense um, than, than Mo Wood, who was a guy who sometimes would do the pump fake from three before driving. Uh, clearly, Morris was a guy who was gonna fire. He's, he's a guy who probably had his worst, drawn reputation as being a ball stopper because he shoots so much. But so they knew that he was gonna be a guy who's gonna test defenses. But as much as kind of the three-point shooting and the defense, the ability to guard up was the plus, uh, the terms of the strict on-court fit. I remember the deadline people were saying and around the league and even in the team that it felt like maybe this team needed a little bit of a kick in the pants and they needed someone who's kind of an enforcer. Uh, again, a big topic, talking point from last year was could they keep that gritty DNA from the team that came back from you know 31 down against the Warriors, 29 down against the Celtics? Could they mold that with the superstars they had too? And you hadn't seen it uh, be a fully cohesive product this year. You know, they had given up a lot of double-digit leads. Sometimes it was like, what's happening here? I think they thought Marcus was a guy who was going to bring that little extra edge um, to this lineup and basically not back down. And I I still remember that second game he was with the team they played in Philly. and He was jaw-to-jaw with Joel Embiid. I mean, within like three quarters of joining the team, he was right there. And I think that was a sign to the guys that this is kind of, for as, for as much as they talked about being that Junkyard Dog team, uh, and they do have those characters, Morris was that extra layer of um, won't back downness. I guess I'd put it, uh, that was really helped this team, I especially thinking in the playoffs.
2: You know, when you're in the playoffs and you're making a, a championship run, you always look for that unexpected contribution. Talk about Zubox. He has been a terrific terrific player in these playoffs and you kind of, you forget, but every game he seems to make significant contributions. I thought he was terrific last night, but talk about his growth. I mean, I thought that was a terrific trade that they, you know, were able to secure him and Lawrence Frank and the people, you know, in the front office. I mean, I think, I think they've done a good job in identifying players like that.
0: Yeah, they locked him up on a good deal too for four years last year at a good, uh, you know, I think seven million a year. I mean, it's a really good contract, especially for what he's showing right now. Because I mean, think about it: last year in the playoffs against Golden State, now it's it's a small ball lineup. It's Golden State. It's really hard. Very few centers can stay on the on the court for that team. But Zubats was played off the court entirely. I mean, after about two games, he barely saw the floor again. And this was a guy who looked really good in his first two months with the team since that trade from the Lakers too. Um, So they. So that was a huge point of, of emphasis for him in the offseason. As soon as he got that new contract, he felt like the team really had confidence in him. He told me that he was back in Croatia basically working out with that, with that you know, box score in his mind of not playing almost at all through the final few games of that Golden State Series when they went to Jermichael Green to be a smaller five. That was pretty much the whole thing that fueled his off season training. Um, he just felt annoyed by that, that he basically uh, couldn't be considered consistent enough to even stay on the floor. Uh, and I think that there have been some major strides that have gotten to this point. I think one of them that jumps to mind was against Houston in early March, one of, the, one of the last games before the shutdown. You know, they had that small ball lineup, and the Clippers didn't play small. They didn't play down. They kept Zubats in the starting lineup, and it was probably his best game of the year. And afterward, you could just tell he was like glowing with excitement because he was basically like everything that I've done for the last several months to to go against a small lineup to show that I'm versatile. Came to fruition on that night. And you see that confidence extend even after shutdown, even after four months off, into how he's played in the playoffs. Um, he's, I think he's really an underrated, obviously, interior defender. He gives them an um, extremely good you know, uh, uh, kind of a, a ability to dissuade drivers in the lane. Even Luka Doncic, as good as he is, was a guy who would test him in the pick and roll, drive deep, and then sometimes pull out or kick out. And I think that's a huge sign of confidence
1: for Zubats. He's only 23 years old. Right. They should be sending the Lakers a annual thank you card for that deal. Oh, no, stop um, it. Stop believe. it. There you go. I still, I still can't, go. can't believe that. you I'm going to tell
2: you game. again, my friend Eric, you haven't <laughs> scouted until you've been wrong. So you've never scouted because <laughs> you've never been wrong yet. You haven't been wrong yet.
1: <laughs> I'm always wrong. I'm always wrong. Um you know, there was such a buildup all year before the stoppage of what this battle for L.A. could be like. And now we joke that how ironic would it be that the battle for L.A. Uh, could take place in, uh, in Disney World on the other side of the country. So no disrespect to the Nuggets, who are down 0-1 to the Clippers. No disrespect to Houston, who has a very tall task in front of them with the Lakers um, it's one step away on both sides. Andrew, what's the buzz right now with both fan bases back in LA that this is now uh, three wins away for the Clippers, four wins away from the Lakers, for the Lakers, excuse me.
0: Yeah. It's, I mean, even though most of us are still in our homes, we're not really like meeting or congregating a whole lot. There's still buzz out here about the matchup that everyone kind of has wanted since what October 22nd, uh, when it was a totally playoff atmosphere inside Staples center more than I want to say 300 media credential for that game. It, it was a circus um, because everyone knew this, this could be it. Uh, it. There's still buzz. I mean, people, people wanted this thing so badly. And, and, you know, the Clippers and Lakers have played up to that potential through a lot of times this year. I mean, I think the Christmas day matchup was one of those that uh, it goes down to one of the, the best games of the year for me, Patrick Beverly knocked me out of bronze hands at the end, Montrose Harrell kind of yapping at the crowd. Uh, the Lakers get their revenge in early March. That's the only loss the Clippers have had when they've been at full strength was that game in a March 8th. So there's there's a lot of back and forth out here still. You know, the quarantine, not stay at home, that hasn't dulled that conversation at all. I I went to my barber the other day. Just They just opened up again and they were talking about Lakers-Clippers. You know, it was like, as if nothing had changed for the last eight months. It was just amazing how uh, that's just something that has, fueled sports out here for ever since October. I mean, at, well, even before that, ever since Kawhi Leonard and Paul George arrived, um, I've, I've had the most random people talk to me when they know what I do about, oh, I love the Lakers. Oh, okay, I don't, I don't you know. Oh, oh, I love the Clippers. You know, They, they <laughs> want to let you know what side they are on. It, it's kind of fun to be that intense because it has not been that rivalry. As we all know, for years, this is the Lakers town. Uh, the Clippers kind of, uh, you know, made some strides, but they've never made it to the conference, even the conference finals. So they haven't really left their mark yet. Um, And so this is really the first chance we have to see, okay, what's it going to take? You know, living out here in L.A. and not being
2: from L.A., you know, it's kind of interesting to watch. I mean, this is a Lakers town, no doubt about it. But you can see the confidence of these Clippers fans. How how do you think the the city is going to respond doing this – time when they finally do and hopefully they do you know don't no disrespect to to the team there's a lot of basketball to be played there's a lot of things that can happen but if they do meet what's the feel you think in the city because when the games when the lakers play i mean the city is like you know things are kind of quiet you know the clippers are getting their fan base I can't imagine the intensity that we're gonna feel when they do, if they do meet together. What, what, what's, your, what's your take on
0: this? I'm a transplant too. I'm from Oregon. I'm not from LA originally. So just like you, it's like, I feel like I'm walking in this strange land where I'm, 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 right. I'm, I'm seeing the fault lines of where the fan bases kind of meet, where they separate. And so it's been fascinating as an outsider to just kind of see what, what, what is the rivalry like or to the extent that it is a rivalry. And I think it's really, the thing I've learned the most is how in the last, well, especially the last 13 months since Kawhi and Paul George arrived, but even before that, since Balmer and since Lob City, I've sensed from Clippers fans that they feel more comfortable almost like expressing that they are Clippers fans. You know, it was like something, (laughs) it was something that some people felt like you almost had to like hide from others. Like you didn't really want to put it out there, but there's a little bit more of a, well, there's certainly more of a pride element now where it's like, it's okay to say, you know what, I am a proud Clippers fan. And and that's something that people said for for decades, you were ashamed, you know, when they were one of the worst teams of the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s, it it was just something that you didn't want advertised. Um, You had to give away your Clippers tickets. Now it's, you know, this is still still a Lakers town, but there is definitely a strong undercurrent, uh, a ripple of Clippers fandom that probably wasn't there eight, nine years ago at all. That's right.
1: Funny thought to close it, Andrew. Clippers beat the Lakers in the conference finals and the Celtics get there out of the East. What are Laker fans doing? Are they rooting for the Clippers or are they not watching?
2: Oh, my God. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold up, Andrew. Did you just somehow slide the Celtics in there? Did you, did you just do that? Oh, well,
1: I just, no. I, I Well, it's a no-win situation because as from what I'm continuing to learn and my experience being out in L.A. the last couple of years, that Lakers fans look down upon the Clippers in a way where they would never root for them. So I'm just wondering if we get that scenario, hopefully, um, wh- what's going to happen?
0: I think they go to the beach and I think they, <laughs> and I, I think they just out of sight, out of mind, uh, you know, check back with me in like three weeks. Oh, who won? Okay. And then you move on. I think that's what they would have to do because that would, that, that must be such a terrible proposition to even think about if you're a Lakers fan, uh, you know, the team that you've always uh, been better than the franchise, you've always had more banners than and more, more kind of prestige than uh, versus the team across the country that you've always battled with. Uh, I, that would be a terrible situation, I'd imagine, if you're a Lakers fan. I'd, I'd probably just turn off the internet if I were that die <laughs> hard, I'm a Lakers fan, uh, because either way, you're losing. You know, Either way, you know someone is coming back at you on Twitter or on Instagram with some kind of comment from the other fan base. So that's, uh, you know, Lou Williams, he said, I forget who he told it to, but earlier this year, he went on in an interview and he said that they were looking forward to the fact that if they win a championship, that they would maybe have no fans at their parade. And, and it, that, that seemed to be something that the team had talked about and almost found pleasure in like, you know what? We know that we are outsiders in a lot of ways, even in our own city, but that's fine because we know the fans we have and we wanna be there for them. And if you know a few thousand show up, that's great. We did it for them.
1: See, I got a great answer and BJ laughed. So <laughs> great a way to close the, the segment. segment. Andrew, thanks for taking the time to join us. This was great, and, uh, you know, we'll have to have you back when uh, we hopefully see the battle for L.A. from Orlando.
0: Definitely. Thanks, guys, for having me.
1: Great stuff today from Andrew Greif from the L.A. Times. And as much as the focus and attention is on the bubble, some some big news this week, a new head coaching hire. I can almost see Brooklyn from this window the Brooklyn Nets have brought in two-time MVP Hall of Famer Steve Nash to be the head coach Um, BJ I know you know Steve I know you know the resume very well I know you know what teams look for in traditional coaching candidates and non-traditional coaching candidates what's your reaction to the hire
2: well first I want to say congratulations uh, to Steve Nash and. You know, look, in this NBA, and I know there's a lot of things going on of first-time coach, so forth and so on, you know, he has been a coach on the floor for a long time as a lead guard. And, and you know what, when you get an opportunity to do what he's going to get an opportunity to do, I think you have to do it. And um, he has a relationship already built with Kevin Durant, Playing the point guard position gives him, I think, you know, an opportunity to connect, if he hasn't already, with Kyrie Irving. And this team has a lot of talent. Karis LeVert, Spencer Dinwiddie. And with this group comes a lot of expectations. And Steve Nash has been in the fire for a long time. So I like the hire. I mean, it was an out-of-the-box hire. I don't think anyone was anticipating this. You know, we heard a lot of names a lot of former names that we've heard of, of former head coaches. And then suddenly out of nowhere, out of left field, you hear Steve Nash comes in and he's the head coach. So uh, I think it's a terrific hire. I think, you know what, I think he's going to be a terrific, uh, I think he's going to do a terrific job up there. And, but it's a big task. I mean, this isn't easy. You're talking about basically two players, you know, even though Kyrie played, he didn't play the entire season. He didn't get down to the bubble and play. So, you know, there's a lot of things that has to be done, but certainly on paper, based on their history, they are a very talented group. But that's a lot different than going out there and doing it. And you have a player that's coming back from a major injury, Kevin Durant. So there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, There's a lot of chatter going on with this hire, but you know, overall, I don't have a problem with it, and uh, you know, again, I just want to say congratulations, and I'm looking forward to it. It should make for great theater in New York. You know, you have Coach Thibodeau now for the Knicks, you have uh, yeah. Coach Nash for Brooklyn, and you have one that's a offensively that we know what he used to do on the offensive end, and then in the Knicks you have a defensive coach, so you could see the the contradiction uh, of what's going on. And I think the class when it comes together should be fun for all the uh, New York, the metropolitan New York area fans. So, uh, but I think it's overall, I think it's good. And uh, you know, and uh, like I said, I'm happy for Steve Nash.
1: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Nash has uh, a rapport with Durant. I mean, I saw those guys together in the practice facility, like, in the lane, at the basket, going over footwork, going over balance, doing the same thing with Steph Curry. Uh, Nash was a guest of ours on, on all the smoke. And as much as he does other things, whether it's creative or it's soccer, football, um, he's a basketball lifer. He is a gym rat. He is a, a junkie for the game. Uh, I don't love all the chatter that's going on out there about this. And I don't want to get into some of the racial undertones that were mentioned this week. But if you're going to criticize hiring a former player without traditional coaching experience and be critical of it, then you also have to look at the past players who were given those opportunities. Derek Fisher was given that opportunity. Jason Kidd was given that opportunity. Mark Jackson, Doc Rivers. It works for some, it doesn't for others. And I think, um, Steve Nash is going to be a very, very good head coach. And if this Brooklyn roster is healthy and they add the right supporting pieces here, um, they're going to look to have a very successful season last year, but Steve Nash is a a very capable person period, regardless of what we're talking about. So, um, as you said, BJ, more drama from New York, but, uh, yeah, the Thibodeau Nash matchup is, uh, That's going to be fun when we get it next year. So great job today, my friend. Good to see you. And uh, we'll pick it up next week.
2: See you next week, my friend.
1: Special thanks, as always, to producer Mike Lieber, the one and only Bruce Bernstein, editor Tom Phillip, and the entire Pure Hoops Media team. Be sure to check out the Mike Wise Show, dropping each and every Monday. John Fanta and Kim Adams talk college ball each Tuesday with Full Court Press. Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto Berlin and Otto Strong dropping Wednesday, Monica McNutt, King McClure, Buckets, Boards, and Blocks, Thursdays and Fridays through the weekend, Pure Hoops Podcast with BJ Armstrong and myself, Eric Newman. Please check out all of our shows, subscribe, download, rate, review. Most of all, enjoy. See you next week. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay pure. The Pure Hoops podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.